Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 8 of Dubliners by Dubliners, the podcast that covers James Joyce's short story collection Dubliners. This month we're looking at A Little Cloud. As always, we've got a copy of the story linked in the description, and you should check out our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the handle by Dubliners. I'm your host, Lock and Coin, and joining me as always is... John Feather. Thanks, John. We're going to kick off today by giving you a brief introduction and summary of James Joyce's biography in the lead-up to the publication of Dubliners. Um, John, I don't know if you want to kick us off with a bit of background on Joyce and the early days. Right, yeah, we'll, we'll probably start off at his university uh, stage where he, he enters UCD in uh, 1898, age 16, and he studies uh, English, French and Italian. At this stage in his life, he's already um, kind of rejected religion, so he went to a Jesuit high school or secondary school, as we'd say here, and uh, kind of refused the suggestion that he becomes a priest. So when he's in university, he doesn't really excel academically. It doesn't seem to interest him so much, but what he is interested in is more the kind of cultural life surrounding the university, and he's involved in debates in the uh, literary and historical society in UCD, which is a debating society that would often debate literary topics. Joyce uh, is interested in the question of how to write, how to make art, particularly art about Ireland. And there's kind of a few different trends in how people are writing about Ireland at this time. There's, from an English perspective, uh, an English cultural critic, Matthew Arnold, who writes about Celtic literature, and he talks about the Irish as being more kind of feminine and mystical and uh, artistic versus as he characterizes the English as being more pragmatic and material. And so some Irish writers try to play up to this kind of stereotype at the time and uh, the writers who participate in this sort of idea of the Celt as seen by, by, English, by English people and by English cultural critics uh, are known as, as participating in the Celtic twilight or Celtic mysticism. And this is a trend that Joyce has very little time for. He absolutely rejects it uh, and he finds it um, yeah, quite annoying. Another group of people who are interested in writing about Ireland are people involved in the Irish cultural revival. As part of the kind of nationalist movement, there was a rebirth in interest in Irish culture, about the language, sports, myths and stories, and yeah, everything to do with Irish culture. This revival is happening at the time when Joyce is in university and immediately afterwards. And Joyce gets involved in it in some ways. He takes Irish lessons from uh, Padraig Pearce. But he quits them after a short time when he realizes that um, Pierce is, is denigrating the English language in order to promote the Irish language. Uh, and, and Joyce is someone who places great value in the English language and English writers can't accept this. There are, of course, other Irish writers who are writing in English about Ireland. Uh, people like William Butler Yeats, Lady Gregory, George Moore, George Russell. And Joyce has a sort of an ambivalent relationship with these writers. He likes Yeats's early play, The Countess Kathleen. And when there are protests uh, against this play, um, protests that claim it's immoral, that it's not portraying the Irish as they should be. So Joyce refuses to sign a letter um, protesting against this play. Uh, but later, he kind of turns against Yeats and, and, and Moore and other people involved in the Irish uh, literary revival. And he writes a, a letter or an essay titled uh, The Day of the Rabblement. Uh, and he, he argues that uh, Yeats and the Irish literary theatre have turned their back on their founding principles and that now they've kind of conceded to the demands of the uh, the original protests and that they're only trying to produce this kind of shallow uh, nationalistic view of Ireland and that they, and Joyce believes that they should be producing more, say, international theatre by uh, authors like Ibsen, who is who's a, a major favourite of his. Yeats, for his 
part he he wrote about Joyce and he said that he had never met such arrogance unjustified by attainment so it's it's worth pointing out that while Joyce is writing all this stuff and has all these theories on what people should and shouldn't write he hasn't really made a name for himself as a writer and he hasn't written a whole lot that's been published and Joyce meanwhile says of Yeats that I met you too late so again this idea that Yeats originally had some sort of artistic vision but that he lost it amongst the nationalist movement so Joyce graduates from UCD in 1902 he then decides to study medicine Uh, he's not particularly well suited to medicine Uh, he struggles with chemistry and uh, and I think what's a, a brilliant a uh, piece of decision making he decides well if I can't succeed in medicine in Dublin I'll go study medicine in Paris because doing it in a second language will somehow be easier um, in order to get to Paris he asks assistance from many of the writers he's spent his time uh, dismissing people like Yeats and, and Lady Gregory these are people he has relationships with but uh, yeah and they help him to get to Paris uh, financially and also in terms of introductions yeah thanks John so I think his life in Paris is pretty bleak he's obviously not very successful in attempting to study medicine over there he you know has spent some time in various universities around paris but ultimately in april 1903 he's alerted by stanislas who is his younger brother and significant companion throughout his life i suppose and that their mother is ill and is likely to die soon so he returns fairly well immediately in april 1903 to dublin this is a challenging period. She dies on the 13th of August, 1903. And I suppose this really kind of fractures Joyce's connections with Dublin, I would say, on a, on a near permanent basis at this stage. You know, his, fa- his mother is dead. He has a strong connection with his younger siblings, but and a number of them will go on to live with him at later points in his life, particularly Stanislaus. However, his father at this stage, and I think we've referenced this before, his father's already, you know, descended further into alcoholism and, 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 and drink abuse, I suppose, ultimately. And this, you know, continues to drive a wedge between both Stanislaus and James and their, their father also. It's later on, or, or slightly later on in the story, the period that he meets uh, Nora Barnacle. So in June 1904, he meets Nora Barnacle. Six days later, they go on a date, the 16th of June, which later becomes Bloomsday. And this is then the basis for why Bloomsday is set on the... Th- the, the, the 16th of June, and, and, and the, that work is littered with references to this date. There's a number of letters, I think, have emerged in the later years that indicate various different insights or thoughts about um, about the date and about Nora, Nora Barnacle and his relationship with her. It's during this time as well that Joyce starts, I suppose he, he's built up a, 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 a litany of friendships. And we, we, we've, John, I think you've, you've referenced a few of these already, but I suppose a couple of the the key players as they relate to a little play of the story we're going to be talking about are um, Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, Vincent Cosgrove, his brother Stanislaus, and um, another man, John Francis Byrne, as well as then uh, the figure of Fred Gallagher, who we'll uh, come back to briefly, I suppose, to, to touch on those those names again. So Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, anyone who's familiar with um, Dublin City and Temple Bar in particular will be or may be familiar with the pub Oliver Sinjin Gogarty's. Uh, one of the main pubs in Temple Bar. So this is named after Oliver Sidgwick-Cogarty. He's an interesting character in his own right, a hugely accomplished polyglot, you know, arguably a well-known, moderately well-known poet, playwright, critic, um, you know, would have hung around these same literary circles that Joyce was hanging in around the time. He also studied medicine. 
He was an accomplished athlete, winning a number of prizes, saving, I think, at least four people he saved from drowning during a during a, a popular bicycle race over the in separate instance across at the same race in, in, in different meetings of it. And Oliver Gogarty goes on to become the basis of Buck Mulligan, who we hopefully you remember from our discussion of the boarding house and also from Ulysses. This person, Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, is also arguably the basis of the character Gallagher, who we will talk about further in as we discuss a little cloud. The other character we talked about then, or the other character I referenced was Vincent Cosgrave. This character, again, forms a, an insider or a comparable character to, to that of Gallagher in A Little Cloud. So Cosgrave is, again, one of these friends of Joyce who was hanging around around the time, you know, he was in Ireland pre post his mother's death, pre his departure for Paris on a near per Europe, I suppose, on a near permanent basis. Um, I suppose the interesting point about Cosgrave is he was allegedly the companion who failed to assist Joyce when he was attacked in Stevens Green for attempting to seduce a woman who was with another man. The person who did successfully save him was a man named Alan, Alfred Henry Hunter, who it's alleged, and, and, and I suppose a lot of the evidence at the moment seems to suggest, was the basis for Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. So these two characters, Oliver Sinjogogody and Vince Cosgrave, are obviously famous for their loutishness, their drinking, their hanging around and doing all these kind of awful things and, and, and kind of general seditious behaviour. And they ultimately form the basis of this, this Gallagher, this Ignatius Gallagher character we're going to talk about. I think similar to this and, and, and in an interesting trend that we can kind of see threaded through here. So in the same way that Alfred Henry Hunter became the basis for Leopold Bloom, Margaret Sinjogogody forms Buck Mulligan. We also see that Gallagher has a very specific counterpart in real life being uh, Fred Gallagher. So Fred Gallagher was effectively follows the trajectory of Ignatius Gallagher in, in A Little Cloud, where he is a newspaper man from Dublin, but as, as a result of a scandal, moves to London where he gets a job, he works across Europe and has a significant role transmitting information related to the Phoenix Park murders to a New York magazine at the time as a result of some fantastically well-conceived of code system. Um, this Gallagher character is obviously the primary model on which Ignatius Gallagher of A Little Cloud is, is, is based, and you know we'll, we'll talk about that more as we actually dive into the the story itself. Following this period then, I suppose, in, on, uh, you know, I've, I've referenced the, the meeting of, of Nora Barnacle as well, it's during this time, and trying to sustain himself in Dublin, that Joyce starts writing Dubliners. So this is where the sisters, Evelyn and After the Race, you may remember when we talked about the sisters, we mentioned that the first edition was published in the Irish Homestead, which was a magazine journal for traditionally aimed at, I suppose, the, the, the farmer or more rural market of Ireland. And so each of the stories where Joyce was paid a, a pound each and by the publication of, or by the submission of the of After the Race, um, the Irish Homestead decided that they they were not appropriate for for their uh, for their readers. Yeah, I believe they were. I believe they got too many complaints regarding the stories and decided not to continue. That that may well be it. I mean, I think, uh, and even as as you know, I, I think at this stage you'll have you'll have listened hopefully to all of our our commentary on the sisters Evelyn and after the race. I, as you can imagine, those are far and away the least concerning or aggressive uh, towards one's morals I would say relative to some of the other stories Two Galants immediately jumps to mind or an encounter as well interesting that that was not 
written in the chronology that it uh, it was eventually published. I think it's really at this stage, after you know, shortly after meeting Nora Barnacle, um, Joyce effectively, and in, in the absence of income from the Irish homestead, Joyce ultimately, I suppose, decides to to, to leave Dublin. And I think John, you've uh, got some thoughts or ideas on this, right? Yeah, he leaves Dublin um, on the basis of a job offer, so he believes he's going to have a job teaching English in Zurich, uh, but when he gets there uh, he finds there's no job with him and so he's brought uh, Nora Barnacle away with him too this time so this is a kind of a he's thinking about when he's he's planning to leave Ireland will he take her or won't because if you think about it their first date was June 16th 1904 and he plans to leave uh, Dublin again around October uh, 1904 so it's, it's a very short period of time so he's He's a bit concerned about bringing her away, but ultimately decides to. As I said, he when he gets to Zurich, he finds out there's no job there for him, but the owner of the school does offer to help him out, and he finds him a job in Pula instead. So um, Nora and Joyce take off there. They spend some time there until they are kicked out of the country along with all other non-nationals because the Austrian authorities, who are in charge of Pula at the time, discover an espionage ring, and so then Joyce ends up in Trieste, uh, again teaching English. Uh, and so this time for Joyce is, is, is mostly okay. I mean, he's poor as he always is. But I think for Nora Barnacle, she is really struggling. She doesn't speak the language, so she's isolated. Uh, and she's also pregnant at this time. Uh, Joyce has kind of, during his time in Ireland, his time spent with characters like Gogarty, he's picked up a bad drinking habit. And so he's also drinking a lot of the the money away that he's earning teaching um he does manage to write the majority of the remaining dubliner stories at this time he writes eight or nine stories during this time he also writes a lot of letters to his brother stanislaus you were talking about models for ignatius gallagher and joyce's friends i think stanislaus or at least stanislaus's attitudes are, are maybe parodied in the other character in in a little cloud in in little chandler um joyce once said to stanislaus What's the matter with you is that you're afraid to live. You and people like you. The city is suffering from hemiplegia of the will. I am not afraid to live. Uh, and hemiplegia is, is a kind of a one-sided paralysis. So this idea that, you know, there's there's a core part of life that, that Stanislaus is missing out. And Stanislaus was a teetotaler. He didn't drink and he often criticised Joyce for, for coming home drunk. I think at this stage, Stanislaus has, I'm not sure if it's exactly at this stage, but... Uh, in 1905, Stanislaus joined Nora and, and, and James in Trieste. And, um, you know, famously, I think he is noted to have been responsible for collecting Joyce for or James from the uh, from a lot of the pubs when he was drunk and, 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 and noted, beated, or, or beat Joyce uh, significantly on a, on a number of occasions when he was when he was quite drunk. Um, as, as you noted, Stanislaus is um, a teetotaler. However, I suppose one of the, the interesting, or the, the other interesting side aspects to his character is that he's not religious and arguably even more a religious than uh, than James himself um although arguably you know I think in, in, in reading Stanislaus's life history or his biography uh, although not the biography he wrote or the uh, the biography he wrote of his 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 life with James uh, my brother's keeper he sees himself I suppose you you it's easy to read Stanislaus as a aspirational younger brother who likes to believe in his own abilities but ultimately recognizes James Joyce's almost unique qualities as a a thinker writer philosopher you know producer of material and you know 
to, to, to an extent or other, you, you do wonder if the refusal of drinking and the, the refusal of that lifestyle is, is driven in part by a desire to distinguish himself from, from James. Um, it's interesting, in, in a, a copy of My Brother's Keeper, he uses the Stanislaus claims that, that, that James uses um, or leverages heavily from him, from Stanislaus's writings, uh, including a, a line from his own uh, diaries kept at the time, he used me as a butcher, uses his steel, uh, which is, you know, obviously a very similar line to the boarding house, you know, um, the, I think the line we, we referenced, uh, she, she dealt with problems as a, a cleaver deals with meat. And so the, there's this very, this idea of kind of an internal monologue is suggested by Stanislaus to be something that he invented or that he perfected a, a, as a means and, and James simply leveraged this. But um, as you say, John, Stanislaus was famously a teetotaler and formed the basis of a very kind of strong, dour character, maybe a little bit jealous. And, you know, you can certainly read some of that characterization into the character of Little Chandler in this story, Little Cloud. As I noted, the other companion or the other potential friend of Joyce's who could be attributed to the character of Little Chandler is uh, John Francis Burns. So again, a friend of Joyce's. They met when they were in secondary school together in Belvedere but, and then went on to study together in UCD. An interesting side note on this character, John Francis Burns, he was actually born in 1880 on East Essex Street, which is in the location that is now known as Brick Alley Cafe, a lovely little cafe in Dublin, if you ever get the chance. It's a beautiful little spot. John Francis Burns was obviously a much more conservative individual and both himself and Cosgrave, who I've referenced earlier, Vincent Cosgrave, both got letters from Joyce when he was in Paris about the debauchery of Paris. And again, the, the significance of this will come much more evident when we go through the plot summary of a little cloud. But um, both Vincent Cosgrave and John Francis Burian received letters from Joyce. One for Vincent Cosgrave, who was a known debaucherous individual. The, the letter was full of references to all the different drinking and other Moulin Rouge-esque events and burlesque shows and things like this that James, that Joyce would have been attending and, and, and abusing himself with and the letter to Jean Francis Byrne was much more somber and, and about the literary and I suppose boring aspects of, of, of life in Paris and much more clean living reflecting kind of John Francis Byrne's more conservative nature. On discovery of the second letter to Cosgrave, Byrne decided to kind of terminate his friendship with Joyce. Now they later reconcile and, and he spends time with them in fact later on in, uh, in Trieste and, and across Europe but uh, in the short term, this is a destruction of the relationship, and you know, I suppose again, it's it's, it's difficult to understand this or to be aware of this story and not draw parallels with the uh, characters from Little Cloud. So, following, um, I suppose, just one 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 last aspect or the the, the final aspect or final leg we can tie to the the, the story a Little Cloud is the unnamed baby in the story a Little Cloud. So, obviously, we've talked about at the time Joyce is writing this story a Little Cloud. He has recently had his own son. Uh, Giorgio Joyce, who um, at the time he was born was thought to be premature, but in fact wasn't. He was just simply born, you know, Nora had unsuccessfully estimated the, the date of birth, the due date to be in August, when in fact it was in July. Um, while Joyce had initially intended and planned for his, name, his son to always be named George, he didn't in fact register the birth for almost a year. There's not a huge amount to say about Giorgio Joyce other than he probably forms his birth and the, I suppose, early period of his life probably forms a, a large significant basis for the story A Little Cloud. Um, Joyce is able to, I suppose, infer and understand the nature of um, the inner monologue of, of, of Chandler through through this, I suppose, interesting side note on Giorgio Joyce. He is the father of Stephen Joyce, who was the last living direct descendant of James Joyce, who he died in 2020. Any of you who are in any way 
Joycean scholar or Joycean inclined, we'll probably know that Stephen Joyce is and probably not have a very fond or positive attitude towards him. He is famous for, I suppose, ultimately disparaging critics, not being happy with anyone leveraging the Joycean thing and, and, and held an exceptionally tight grip on copyright of Joyce's works, preventing a large number of Joycean studies from taking place. While never outright banning anyone, he did attach obscene monetary charges to the use of any of Joyce's works, um, famously suing a number of different institutions, both in the US and Ireland, despite never, ultimately, never returning to Ireland, or at least not returning to Ireland until uh, much, much, much later in his life. He inherited a significant part of his dislike, or Joyce's dislike for Ireland. I think that that probably gives you enough of a, a background there, and we can probably, I can pass over to John again to uh, to, to give us a plot summary of the, the little player, so you can you can start to understand who some of the characters we've been referencing are now. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Lachlan. Yeah, so a little cloud then... We have a story of two old friends meeting again. One has remained in Ireland and one has gone to London and made a name for himself. So the character who remains in Ireland is known as Little Chandler and the one in London is Ignatius Gallagher. And so the the, the narration or the story itself follows uh, Little Chandler. He is finishing up at work and he's looking forward to meeting his friend Ignatius Gallagher who is over visiting Dublin again. As he reflects on his friend, he starts to think about Dublin and he thinks of Dublin as a place you can't get anything done, but he feels positively about his friend who's gone over to London and, and made a name for himself. Eventually, he gets to the place where they're due to meet and it's quite a fancy restaurant known as Corliss's. Uh, he meets his friend and things don't go exactly as little Chandler expects. Yeah, Ignatius Gallagher starts to talk about all of his experiences on the continent and in London and in Paris and Belittles Dublin refers to it in, in kind of belittling terms. After after this period of conversation, little Gallagher starts to ask about Chandler's life. He asks him that he hears that he's married and that he has a child. Gallagher congratulates little Chandler on this. Uh, little Chandler, in turn, then uh, wanting to kind of get one back at, at Gallagher for the earlier kind of slights and for not having experienced everything that, that Gallagher has experienced on the continent, suggests that... Uh, Chandler might have find a woman of his own one day. Chandler kind of rejects this idea, saying, "Oh, you not not yet. I want to see live more and want to see more of the world." Uh, so uh, again, in this, little Chandler is kind of rebuffed. Little Chandler then m- makes an offer to Gallagher to come over to spend an evening with him and his wife, but uh, Gallagher again says, "Oh, he doesn't have time and he has to leave." So this meeting leaves little Chandler with a kind of bad feeling. Uh, he goes home to his wife and he realizes he's, he's quite drunk at this stage and he's forgotten to buy coffee for his wife. His wife is angry at him. He looks at a picture of his wife and regrets his life. He regrets um, having married her and regrets uh, the life he has with her. Uh, and he's left to hold his baby while his wife runs to the store. Uh, the baby starts crying. He can't find any way to placate the baby. Uh, eventually his wife comes back and she's angry at him because the baby is crying and Chandler is 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 just there crying uh, tears of remorse. Thanks for that, John. Yeah, so I mean, I think in terms of uh, how we're going to tackle this one, like I think as usual, we're going to look at this through kind of a chronological order of the story. I suppose it helps in this one. I, th- I think you can argue, and, and, and John, I'm actually curious as to your thoughts on this. I, I personally, I wouldn't see this as having a traditional three-act structure. Although I have um, a lot of the critics that I've read on this suggest that there is a clear three-act structure suggesting that there's the pre, the section pre, before he meets Gallagher, the interactions itself with Gallagher, and then 
the I suppose the, the, the final act where all of this comes undone during his interactions with his wife my position on this would be that the, there, there's really a, a bifurcated story that you've got a hopeful or positive upward trajectory prior to the turning point or the inflection point where Gallagher and where Chandler from my perspective I suppose I see Chandler as the villain in this story where I see him start to needle Gallagher over whether or not he's getting married and kind of try to force him to agree to or force him to commit to spending time with with with, with Chandler when he um, when he returns to when he returns to Dublin in the future and then uh, the second half is after this and it's all kind of downward from there where he's almost mirroring the positive you know excitedly leaving work getting more and more excited kind of getting more pumped up I suppose for this meeting with Gallagher and then on the way home he's kind of oh Jesus I forgot the coffee oh I just want to read this book and and, and there's kind of almost a mirroring of, of two halves of story but curious of your thoughts on this John. Yeah I think I mean there's definitely three moods I mean there's a there's an explicit splitting of the of the scenes between when he leaves Gallagher and when he arrives home there's a there's a piece of the the narrative missing there but in the early part it is one continuous narrative from him looking forward to meeting Gallagher to then actually meeting Gallagher in their conversation. Yeah, although the narrative is continuous, there are clearly two separate moods, so I guess it depends on if you separate that, the acts based on, on the mood of the scene or based on the, the hard cut of, of the, the narrative. I mean, I suppose the, the main ideas, or at least my kind of key takeaways on this, was obviously paralysis. If we look at this through the, the lens of Noman, Simony, and paralysis, paralysis again is, is, is definitely one of the most strong thematic cores to this one. You certainly excuse me, you certainly see this in Chandler's, I suppose, life, ultimately. His approach to things he's, he believes that he could be any number of the many different great artistic things, you know, part of that, that, that Celtic, um, that Celtic school and, 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 and just this great writer who achieves many great things and is, is, is popular in the London presses, but ultimately has failed to achieve any of these things and can't even successfully get through, um, the, the, the Byron poem at the end without kind of being interrupted and, 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 and paralyzed and it's, it's, it's simply not capable um, as for Noman and Simony they're, they're certainly in here and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on them but I, I, I think paralysis is really the, 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 the core idea you want to be focusing on for this John I don't know if you have a, a different approach you usually do I usually do. No, I, I, I try to agree with you as much as possible. No, I think yeah, paralysis, like so many of the stories, is, is so key to this. Um, and I think yeah, what you what you mentioned previously about about uh, how how the story progresses, it's it's a similar trajectory to a lot of the stories where you have this hopeful beginning and then this return to normality, return to just the day to day of of Dublin. It's kind of this character who dreams of an escape has growing hope and hope and then in the end is just left to return to their everyday life so maybe we we kick off then and and and, and look, start to progress through the story so at the start we have this again this narrator who is describing it's a it's a third person narration but you get a sense again of this free and direct discourse and that the narrator at the start of the story starts describing Gallagher in quite glowing terms from the perspective of Chandler at the start of the story you know maybe read out the quote here few fellows had talents like his and fewer still could remain unspoiled by such success Gallagher's heart was in the right place and he deserved to win it was something to have a friend like that so yeah so at the start it's this very complimentary 
view of Gallagher. And yeah, and, and, and we'll see as we go through this story that this doesn't quite line up with the, with the Gallagher we come to know as the story progresses. Thanks for that, John. I think at this stage it's probably worth um, just taking a bit of time to, to review or discuss our, our, our protagonist of the story, um, Little Chandler. The book itself probably gives us the, the best physical description of him, if I can uh, quote liberally here. He was called Little Chandler because, though he was but slightly under the average stature, he gave one the idea of being a little man. His hands were white and small, his frame was fragile, his voice was quiet, and his manners were refined. He took the greatest care of his fair silken hair and moustache and used perfume discreetly on his handkerchief. The half-moons of his nails were perfect, and when he smiled, you caught a glimpse of a row of childish white teeth. Right off the mark there, Joyce is giving us a very clear physical description of Little Chandler. He's not even necessarily diminutive in physical stature, but his attitude and his mannerisms, there's, there's definitely the hint of um, not of a rough and ready, kind of burly, muscular individual like we've seen in some of the other stories. The um, Jack from the boarding house would have been kind of, I suppose, a, a direct opposite to Little Chandler here in this description. And I think this, this, this tees up the character of Little Chandler. It gives you a great description of his physicality and it, it really ties into this realist reading of, of, of Joyce that you have where you, you have this incredible detail down to the half moons on his nails and the, the, the stylizing of his, of his teeth. It's later on and it, it's I suppose this physical description will link in then later on to the narrative or the I suppose psychological description of Little Chandler as we see his musings and his thoughts both on his own role in society and his life and where that sits within I suppose the wider world and then similarly as well his interactions with the world his expression of himself physically is limited to you know the children and the weaker characters rather than you know he doesn't physically interact with with the Gallagher in any kind of meaningful way yeah he's he's definitely not a a physical character you know he he thinks of himself as a as a poet or as a writer and yeah there's an interesting passage early on in the story where he talks about his books of poetry at home and how one many an evening he kind of thinks about taking one from the bookshelf taking one of the books of poetry from the bookshelf and reading it aloud to his wife but he never actually does it uh, because he's too shy and he something always holds him back little chandler i think is this very constrained character i mean you hear even in the, the description you read out that he he used perfume discreetly he's he's very concerned with offending social etiquette with with going against social etiquette or with being in any way uh you know standing out absolutely yeah i mean i think he's he's a flawed character i think right off the mark we see his unwillingness to push social boundaries you know he wants to be almost kind of a dandy-esque figure, I would say, you know, using this this perfume and, and, and maintaining kind of this, this fair silken hair and moustache, but equally is kind of afraid of the consequences of the associated social diminution that would occur as a result of being seen as this kind of dandy-esque figure. And as a result of that, then tries to temper this attitude or temper this approach. And it, it, it creates this somewhat unlikable character, I would say, at least from my from my perspective, from the, from the get-go, I always found him to be slightly off-putting while you know, I could recognize facets or features of myself and definitely in that paralysis, that inability, that desire to become an artist or to be an artist, but feeling trapped or constrained by the realities of, you know, needing money, needing to work, needing to support his family, you know, all these things trapped in a trapped in a, a cog or a, a trapped in a machine that forces you to act a certain way while desiring to to escape out of this this lifestyle. So he works as a clerk in the King's Inn, which is a legal institution uh, would be associated with 
with Britain. I mean, just the name itself, the King's Inn, you can kind of read your associations into that. And yeah, he works there as a, as a clerk, so he's not a very high up in the organisation. And yeah, I think as you mentioned, Lachlan, he's, this kind of role also suggests this kind of constrained um, you know, office work. Absolutely. I mean, I think if I can, if I can quote um, the description of him leaving, um, it says, when his hour had struck, he stood up and took leave of his desk and of his fellows' clerks punctiliously. He emerged from under the feudal arch of the King's Inns, a neat, modest figure, and walked swiftly down Henrietta Street. I think in, in, in that quote, you know, it's, it's the, the, the feudal arch of the King's Inns is, uh, is a really interesting expression obviously the arch is this kind of doorway this this framing literally a framing device and Joyce kind of very cleverly uses that to to kind of take a snapshot of of, of little Chandler essentially as a this this man trapped within a, a wider framework that he doesn't necessarily understand or adhere to and doesn't even recognize that he's at the the lowest level of that pecking order yeah and then if we look at his mental attitude uh, at this point in the story it seems like a stoic resignation he says uh he felt how useless it was to struggle against fortune, this being the burden of wisdom which the ages had bequeathed to him. You get from that description, you see his kind of high opinion of himself, but you also see this idea of the Dublin paralysis that he is seeing it as somehow a virtue that he has, you know, trapped himself inside this um, paralyzed state. And similarly with the, with the earlier image I mentioned of him not even daring to read poetry aloud to his wife, you get the idea that this paralysis has he's fully internalized it that it's become fully a part of his character and he even almost views it as a virtue absolutely and i mean i think it's um it's interesting then yeah if we, if we move forward we we drive the figure of ignatius gallagher further you know when we actually meet ignatius gallagher and and, and ultimately even i suppose his ignatius gallagher as a character we talked about earlier how Gallagher, the figure of Gallagher was based on a, a number of other characters from Joyce's own life. Oliver Sidgwick Gogarty and Vincent Cosgrove immediately jumped to mind, as well as the real-life individual Fred Gallagher, whose biographical details, are, I think, are heavily leveraged for the character of Ignatius Gallagher, whereas I believe his more of his temperament in the story and the, the, the non-direct aspects of his life are, are more leveraged from Gogarty. You know, Gallagher is effectively this grand man about town he left dublin you know eight years earlier as a result of some undescribed event or schism within the community and you know fled effectively fled to london where he landed on his feet by all accounts and and, and managed to translate that that charm and that effervescence or that 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 incredibly charming irish caricature into success in the newspaper industry there and he's now, kind of, this is the first return journey to, to, to up Dublin that he's made, and he's finally coming back as a character more fully formed, and having broken free of that, is able to kind of float above the the grim darkness of um, of Dublin, I think, in, in itself, encapsulated almost perfectly by the fact that he's meeting Chandler in Corliss's, this this high-end uh, oyster and liqueur serving bar that, uh, that little Chandler has walked past many times but has never managed to, to attend himself. Yeah, immediately before little Chandler gets to Corliss's, which as you mentioned, Lachlan, is this fancy restaurant serving oysters and so on, he walks through this poverty-stricken neighbourhood in Dublin um, and the description is, a horde of grimy children populated the street. They stood or ran in the roadway or crawled up the steps before the gaping doors and squatted like mice upon the thresholds. Little Chandler gave them no thought. So at many points in Dublin here, Dubliners here, as we mentioned it, Dubliners, the collection, 
primarily deals with this middle class characters. You always have the more poverty stricken characters in the background. And it's always interesting to see how the, the middle class characters interact with them. So in, in this case, little Chandler purely ignores them and he, he goes on his way to his fancy oyster restaurant to meet his friend. Yeah, no, I think that that, that definitely brings back images of um, an encounter, the interaction with the wild children that uh, the, the, the protagonist of that story chooses to ultimately not engage in. But um, certainly it's interesting to see these these, these bands of, 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 of poverty, these this, I suppose, abject level of poverty, people literally not quite homeless, but living in kind of maybe single, you know, multiple families living in a single room, kind of tenement lifestyles and this is rubbing up against the most opulent places in Dublin city centre and, and, and in Dublin as a whole. So that image really tees Chandler up to meet Gallagher then when he goes in. And he first sees Gallagher kind of just standing at the bar, knocking back drinks and, 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 and kind of instantly at home in this Corliss's, despite the fact that obviously he's never been to, or he hasn't been to Dublin in eight years and presumably wasn't really in Corliss's at the time that he left uh, Dublin kind of eight years prior. So it's interesting to see how... Gallagher has almost how Joyce has excluded the development phase for Gallagher. We've kind of, you know, from our perspective, really reading the story through the eyes of Bill Chandler, we have all these memories of Gallagher as this kind of down and out, but, you know, kind of fun, exciting individual. He leaves Dublin. We don't hear from him for eight years. And when he returns, he's now sitting in this really nice fancy bar, kind of greeting us and, 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 and pulling us and Bill Chandler over to to drink in the, uh, the bon vivant and the the liveliness that, that that he brings with him yeah it's interesting you, you chose to employ a french word there we'll touch on that later i think um uh, yeah as you said we skip ignatius gallagher's development phase but i think even in the descriptions we have of him during his earlier time in in, in ireland he said like you know there's mysterious problems with money and he had to leave you you get the impression of you know a similar character to the to the characters we saw in two galants these kind of yeah, rough and tumble, boisterous, more, uh, yeah, they're charming, but uh, yeah, not very, uh, I guess you would say, morally upright. Before Little Chandler arrives to Corliss's to meet Ignatius Gallagher, he walks through Dublin and he sees, uh, he, he observes the city and he feels he has this poetic moment where, uh, if I, I'll read out what he sees, the poor stunted houses, they seem to him a band of tramps huddled together along the riverbanks, their old coats covered with dust and soot, stupefied by the panorama of sunset and waiting for the first chill of night to bid them arise, shake themselves and be gone. Uh, so it's it's this moment where he personifies the houses. Whatever about the image itself, I think uh, what's interesting is uh, Little Chandler's reaction to it, that he, he feels he had this poetic moment and that this moment fills him with a sort of hope. He somehow believes that you know, this this uh, restrained clerical life he's been living the whole time is leaving him behind and he's now entering a world of imagination and his dreams now of talking to Gallagher and Gallagher will somehow introduce him to a literary set, will somehow kick off his literary career in London. Uh, and so, yeah, so little Chandler is, is just dreaming of of, uh, of leaving his life behind, basically, even before he arrives to the restaurant uh, with Gallagher. Yeah, and I think I think it's an interesting point there. And, 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 you know, it might be jumping a little bit further ahead in the story here. But, uh, you know, I think I think that characterization of little Chandler as a dreamer and, and his kind of fantasies, it gives us a hint that everything little Chandler presents to us or everything presented to us via the medium of little Chandler may not exactly be tied to reality so much as a fantasy or a dream you know at this stage we ourselves haven't had an interaction with Gallagher as a reader we haven't kind of had a direct report report of what Gallagher is doing 
we've just heard Little Chandler's memories and recollections of uh, his time with Gallagher rather than any specific events and things like that. And it's, it's interesting because then once we get into the discussion with Gallagher and once we start talking with him, those don't necessarily line up one-to-one with Gallagher's recollections or Gallagher's presentation. And I, I think that's particularly the point when you when they start talking about their their mutual friends and their re- recollection of that of that point but you know as i say i might be jumping ahead there but i would say treat little chandler his fantasies and things like that bear bear those in mind i suppose as you're as you're working through it yeah i think the other thing regarding little chandler's imagined writing career is he starts to imagine himself as um you know, it's it's quite an elaborate imagination. He believes he he's a sort of a Celtic poet, uh, kind of referring to the to that Celtic mysticism or that Celtic twilight that we 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 talked about in the intro. And the way he describes himself, what is he could not sway the crowd, but he might appeal to a little circle of kindred minds. The English critics, perhaps, would recognize him as one of the Celtic school by reason of the melancholy tone of his poems. Besides that, he would put in allusions. So he's already, you know, kind of selling himself out as a hack there that he he's going to put in allusions to kind of make himself seem like like one of these these Celtic poets that will satisfy the English critics. And later he he reflects that perhaps he can change his name, that Chandler is too English a name, and that he could use his mother's name, which is uh, Malone, which would be a more Irish sounding name to the to the English populace. So even in in uh, Little Chandler's fantasies, he's he's not a true artist, let's say, and. Joyce, uh, as we mentioned at the start, he kind of despises this sort of poetry. And so him choosing to portray Little Chandler as someone who, uh, in his dreams, dreams of being a hack poet is, uh, you know, pretty damning condemnation of, of Little Chandler's character. So yeah, after, after all Little Chandler's dreaming, he eventually arrives at the uh, at Corliss's and, and, and meets Gallagher and, and the conversation doesn't go exactly as he expects. Certainly not. So I think it, it, initially, you know, um you've got this very clear setup, you know, as soon as Gallagher starts talking, the narrative focus really shifts onto Gallagher and he becomes, you know, it's very apparent he's got this very larger than life, boisterous characterization, you know, he's kind of pushing drinks on him, he's, you know, just kind of this gregarious, he's referring to the the waiter as garçon and, and um, various other kind of French diminutive words that are obviously uh, Francois, I think is the other one he uses, so there's this kind of... Um, I think you almost know the character, this kind of larger-than-life big man standing at the bar. Oh, Chandler, come here. Let's get a drink into you. And Chandler's like, oh, I'm not really mad. And there's there's the line, I think, don't don't turn that whiskey into punch. So uh, for anyone who's not Irish or from, I suppose, the traditional Celtic whiskey-drinking nations, whiskey is traditionally drank neat. Um, and a small tumbler of water, a small jar of jug of water is provided with the, the whiskey to dilute it a small amount. And to turn your whiskey into punch would mean to, to be adding more water than, than whiskey and effectively creating more than a 50-50 split, which would be considered the edge of a drink and the beginning of a, some kind of nonsense or, or, or shame. And again, even even just in that expression, you know, you've, you've got the idea, Chandler kind of references the fact that he doesn't typically drink unless, um, you know, he meets up with the old crowd and that's maybe once a year and, and, and Gallagher's like, ah, oh, no, don't worry about it. And you, you, you've just got this sense of kind of energy and, and, and much more activity and function Gallagher's stories even all refer back to events that have happened that he's participated in whereas Chandler's narratives tend to focus on his aspirations and things that he would love to do but hasn't achieved or hasn't realized yet so there's that distinction there between action and inaction dreams and reality you know 
a, a recollection of the past versus a dream for the future. And, you know, it, it, it very much kind of ties these characters, puts these characters apart. One one small facet that I, I, I wanted to zoom in on as well is just that Gallagher asks about all of the, the, the friends that they've referenced. And, you know, Little Chandler has kind of teed up these characters or these, 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 this friendship group earlier in the narrative. And, you know, when Gallagher starts asking about them, he's kind of referencing, oh, you know, I met up with so-and-so and I met up with so-and-so and he's looking great. And Chandler's kind of telling him about all these things and it never occurs to Chandler. It's kind of a dramatic irony moment that Gallagher has met all these people in Dublin and clearly seems to have met or suggested to have met them as a group which Chandler would have referenced himself as this is my group of friends that I meet up with and it's obvious that they've all met up together without him and then someone, it's, it's through this grouping that someone said to Gallagher, oh, you should catch up with little Chandler as well. And I think there's probably, to my reading of it anyway, and I know, John, I think you might disagree with this, to my reading, this is a meeting of obligation on Gallagher's part that he feels, oh God, I know that little Chandler guy really looked up to me, I should give him, you know, give him a chance and just meet up with him for a few drinks but nothing serious whereas Chandler thinks oh god you know I love that uh, Ignatius Gallagher guy and he's so great and there, there's a disconnect between their perception of each other I suppose ultimately. Yeah I think you might be onto something there as you said he, he's already visited everyone else and, and we'll see later in this story that this visit is almost the last thing he does before he goes back so it's it's almost an afterthought you know it's the thing that might not have happened uh, in his in his trip home and I I think maybe it's he's done out of obligation, but I think you're maybe offering Gallagher uh, too much of a noble noble motive there that uh, that he, he doesn't seem to be particularly kind to little Chandler. Um, you know, from when he meets him, like you said, he's using French, he's kind of lording it up. Whenever he refers to, to Dublin, he kind of uses like some sort of diminutive, like, oh, dear, dirty Dublin or run along Dublin. Uh, kind of diminishing Dublin itself, but also the lives of people who are there. And then when he starts to talk to um, when he starts to talk to Little Chandler himself, he, he says, "Oh, you haven't changed an atom." Us as readers in the story of Dubliners, you know, we we immediately probably think of you know paralysis that Little Chandler hasn't changed an atom. But it's uh, it's kind of a, a disrespectful in a way that uh, you know he's suggesting that oh he's gone off and had all these adventures and Little Chandler is yeah he asserts that that Chandler is the same as he's always been. Uh, the quote is uh, you're the very same serious person that used to lecture me on Sunday mornings when I had a sore head and fur on my tongue. You'd want to knock about a bit in the world. Have you never been anywhere even for a trip? Uh, so yeah so again this kind of belittling dismissive you know you're, you're the same you haven't learned anything this kind of also um, a glorification of, of alcoholism I suppose that uh, you know he's he's saying that part of part of what uh, is restraining or part of the problem with little Chandler is that uh, he he lectures others for drinking and he's not going out and getting drunk himself true and I mean I, I think everything you've said there is, is, is correct and accurate but I suppose the where I would I, I would stake a difference or where I would see the, the, the significance or relevance of that is that Gallagher has done all these things. Everything that Gallagher talks about is a retrospective, you know, I've gone out, I've lived my life, I have changed, you know, I was hanging around, kicking around Dublin, drinking with you, getting lectures from you. I've gone to London, I've gone to Paris, I've gone to Berlin, I've seen all these things. What have you done? You know, you've sat there and, you know, eight years ago you were telling me all these grand stories about becoming a poet and your love of poetry and reading and things like that. And what have you done? You've gone and become a clerk in the King's Inn, got married and had a child. And there's this, you know, I I, I suppose I, I, I see it from Gallagher's perspective in that, you know, Gallagher's like, I'm just telling you as it is, you know, 
there is no disconnect between what Gallagher says and how Gallagher lives and what Gallagher does. Whereas I think Little Chandler is a disingenuous character. There's a facade to Little Chandler that isn't backed up by the reality of how he lives his life. And I suppose that's my, that's why I have a distaste for Chandler versus Gallagher is that at least Gallagher is honest about everything that he is and everything that he does. Whereas Chandler is very initially quite fawning. And then as we we'll probably start talking about now after this section. Um, you know, there's this turning point and then Lil Chandler starts taking taking snipes or swipes at, at Gallagher and putting down his thing and, and kind of challenging the way he lives his life. And so there's this, you know, a, a disingenuousness to Lil Chandler that I think doesn't exist in Gallagher. Yeah, I'm not sure I would agree with you that Gallagher is, is, is such a straight shooter. Definitely, I mean, he's experienced a lot more than, than Chandler and... Some of his stories are, are backed by real experiences. But there's something about his use of French there that seems like an affectation. Even the way he stands at the bar, you know, he's, he stands with his, his feet splayed wide and his back to the bar. Maybe it's an ease, but it also seems to me like a bit of an affectation that he's, he's acting more at ease or he's acting more uh, experienced than he actually is. Another, another point against um, Gallagher's sincerity or Gallagher's genuineness is uh, he has found out from another friend that Little Chandler has had kids and uh, is married. And so he, uh, he, he says that, uh, I hope it's not too late in the day to offer my best wishes. I didn't know your address or I'd have done so at the time. So the, so the whole idea of not knowing his address, I mean, obviously he has friends in in Ireland who he's staying in contact with and he could have found Chandler's address if he so wished so his assertion that you know he he would have done so at the time is probably false he probably just didn't really care and later he wishes him well and he says that's the wish of a sincere friend an old friend you know that so again Gallagher's sincerity here at least in his relationship to little Chandler is well he's not sincere yeah I I, I suppose I mean I, I think in some ways that's part of the point though and again you know I, I, I would read that same passage as, as, as going the other way as saying you know I'd written if I had your address I don't have your address because we're not really those close of friends but equally I recognize the importance of kind of social obligation and the requirement to you know say congratulations on your your, your marriage and it was um, you know well done to you because and I think what's, what's interesting about that is that that really brings us to that um that turning point, you know, and I think, it, you know, arguably it is that uh, that moment, that line that, uh, that Gallagher says, where it's like, oh, we're sincere and old friends, you know, that's a wish of the sincere friend and old friend, because then that, that's the point at which Chandler kind of turns around and says, um, I hope you'll spend an evening with us, he said, before you go back. My wife will be delighted to meet you. We can have a little music and he just gets cut off he just gets cut off there by Gallagher who says, you know, oh, look, I'd love to, but, you know, I'm off tomorrow. Um, and he's like, oh, you can come tonight. And he's like, oh, sorry, you know, I would, but I've got a card party on and I, I've got these plans. And it's, it's it's at this point that kind of Chandler, you can kind of almost, if you're visualizing this, you can almost see the the, the, the wheels turning in, in little Chandler's head. And he's, he, if I can read out this passage. Um, Very well, said little Chandler. The next time you come, we must have an evening together. That's agreed now, isn't it? Yes, that's agreed, said Ignatius Gallagher. Next year, if I come, proled on her. And to clinch the bargain, said Little Chandler, we'll just have one more now. Ignatius Gallagher took out a large gold watch and looked at it. Is it to be the last, he said? Because you know, I have an AP. Oh yes, positively, said Little Chandler. Very well then, said Ignatius Gallagher. And it's, um, 
you know that you you can really feel this this kind of thing where Chandler is like, uh, we, next time you come, you'll have a drink. That's agreed now, isn't it? He's tied into this idea of of kind of. I'm not going to let this float as a you know an an empty promise or something that's kind of floated there. I'm nailing you down to this, and Gallagher is kind of like, all right, if and he does on this 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 conditional of next year if I come, you know I I, I guarantee I'll, I'll I'll spend more time with you, and it's, it's and at this point then what's really interesting is little Chandler kind of says you know and to clinch the bargain we'll just have one more now. So this is the first drink that little Chandler has proposed up till now. Gallagher has kind of been pushing the drinks on Chandler and then suddenly the kind of tables turn and, and, and Gallagher is, is, is now being obliged to, to have a drink and, and, and kind of calling time on it. Yeah, little Chandler, as we mentioned at the start, he's he's not a big drinker and, and the drink starts to affect him more and more. And he also starts to reflect on, on Gallagher and, and reflect on the, the contrast between their lives. And, and you can really see the... Well, the contrast between the two characters, but also the contrast between Chandler's description of Gallagher now versus how he's described at the start. So Joyce writes now that Chandler felt acutely the contrast between his own life and his friends, and it seemed to him unjust. Gallagher was his inferior in birth and education. He was sure that he could do something better than his friend had ever done or could ever do, something higher than mere tawdry journalism. If only he got the chance. Yeah, his 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 attitude to Gallagher, you know, at the start he's saying, Oh, he's 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 kept his, his head and he's he's deserved every success and now it's it's the exact opposite. He doesn't believe that the Gallagher deserves what he has considering his own state in life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it gets even more aggressive, I suppose, near the near the end, you know, they little Chandler starts saying starts kinda of teasing Gallagher, kinda of saying, Oh, you know, you're gonna get married and kind of pushing it and he you'll put your head in the sack, repeated little Chandler stoutly, like everyone else, if you can find the girl. And there's this double-edged attack of, you know, you are going to get married because everyone does, and it'll happen if you can find the girl, rather than, you know, so there's not even the suggestion of, you know, this hint that the reason he's not married already isn't, you know, a decision made by Gallagher, it's a failure by Gallagher to find the correct woman. And it, it's this attempt by Chandler, I suppose, to re-establish himself as the dominant one or or, or, or or the the more successful one of the two but um you know i think i think that, that that falls a little flat yeah he's he's quickly rebuffed so gallagher is, is saying that you know there's there's many women he could have if he so desired but he's only going to settle down with a rich woman and, and once he's seen a bit of the world and he and he even makes a, a his closing remark then to to chandler is uh you know, he says it with a wry smile uh, that Chandler's experience of marriage must get a bit stale, I should think. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's this really the gloves are off at this stage. And he's, you know, although Gallagher has earlier congratulated Chandler on, on his marriage, he's now just kind of dismissed him and dismissed his life. Yeah, I think there's there's two interesting aspects to that that section, if I can if I can touch on both of them. First of all, that's where the section ends. So you've got this solipsis i suppose section break effectively in the middle of the story and it, it, it picks up with with little chandler just arriving home so you have this nomanesque moment if i can tie things back to Nomen again where we understand the, the the larger piece of the puzzle we've seen this critical section and we don't need to see the actual fallout and the kind of goodbye goodbye oh, i'll see you now take it easy it's just it just jump cuts to little chandler back at home kind of slightly down on his look and, and, and slightly upset 
and I suppose the other the other part that's missing, and I guess this is why I wanted to highlight this, it's it's the absence as much as the presence. We never see who pays for the drinks. So throughout this whole thing, Gallagher has been pushing the drinks. He's ordering the drinks. He offers a cigar to Little Chandler as well during this, and it, there's a heavy suggestion that. Gallagher is the one who's paying for all these drinks that, you know, Little Chandler would never have suggested going to Corliss's. He's not going to be able to afford the drinks there. And it's, it's, Gallagher is taking out his friend Little Chandler. And I think that, that probably adds an additional layer or element to the story as well that you've got this monetary aspect undercutting everything. So even though, you know, Gallagher is allowed to be a bit more boisterous, a bit more gregarious, because ultimately this is his show. He's funding it, he's paying it, he's allowing. He's bringing little Chandler with him, and he's kind of yeah. He, he admittedly he probably is showing off, but is he allowed to or is he entitled to? Yeah, I don't know if I'd say he's in, he's entitled to, but uh, yeah, you're 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 right that this is this is Gallagher's show. As you said, there's no doubt in our mind about how this thing resolves. You know, we don't see little Chandler getting up to fight Gallagher or anything. Little Chandler has been thoroughly put in his place and. He's not going to do anything about that because he is this character who is so restrained, so paralyzed. Yeah, then the next section we see we see Chandler come home and we, we learn that again to, to bring back up the money point that uh you know he's he's quite frugal with money, that they, they keep no servant, but that uh his wife Annie's young sister comes to help sometime. And so this, this trip to Corliss is would would have been an extravagance for him if he's the one paying. The other thing that's told to us readers when we get home is that he's forgotten to bring the coffee for which his wife asked and this is the uh, the start of the big quarrel they have at home yeah this is it so this kind of triggers the last section of the story or the, I, mean, I mean obviously we, we, we've entered the last section of the story but I suppose this, this triggers the last kind of significant event where he's failed to bring the coffee home his wife is upset with him and there's almost that, that kind of easily interpretable passive aggressive moment where she kind of says no it's fine I don't want any coffee but then you know 10 minutes before the shops are due to close heads out to get her own coffee because she is uh she's upset with him it's it's um you know that, that that's a very relatable moment i think and, and, and a lot of us can kind of recognize that that passive aggression and we, we've, we've all acted in those ways at some time or another i suppose this this tees up the last section and this this really drives home the material lack that chandler experiences that he tries to i suppose compensate for with a psychological or a, an artistic wealth through the kind of um the books that he has and he picks up this 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 book of pirate byron poems and, and makes this attempt to, to start reading it but he is then ultimately prevented from doing so by by his uh by his child and it's 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 um it's actually brilliant i suppose it, there's a very clever kind of literary technique joyce uses here where he's um if i can just quote heavily here again and he rocked it faster with his eyes, began to read the second stanza. Within this narrow cell reclines her clay, that clay where once it was useless. He couldn't read, he couldn't do anything. The wailing of the child pierced the drum of his ear. It was useless, useless. He was a prisoner for life. His arms trembled with anger and suddenly bending to the child's face, he shouted, stop. Um, and there's this fantastic realism, I suppose. This is, this is just a text, but the, the action, the physicality of, of everything that's happening there is, is very relatable it's very interpretable from the words on the page into an imagined scene here you, you can see him kind of trying to read the getting halfway through the sentence and then just it's impossible just giving up and you can really see someone at the end of their tether that he just can't keep going he's so much stress in his life and he's just he's just snapped and 
you know, the, I, I suppose you, you have this horrible moment where he, he shades the child, he, he, he just shades stop and... Yeah, and obviously the child doesn't doesn't stop as a result. Um, and yeah, everything you said about his life, I mean, there's there's other hints how he's he's trapped in his life. His his particularly that they're buying furniture on the hire system, so so he owes a lot of money for for furniture that he's not even going to own for for a while yet. This debt that ties him down is, is is similarly he he feels that way about his marriage. At one stage, he's he's looking at a photo of his wife and he's he's asking himself why had he married the eyes in the photograph that once he had found her pretty but now in this moment he 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 doesn't see that at all that his her eyes repel him um and so yeah he's really been gallagher has really gotten under his skin clearly that he's he's kind of rejecting everything in his life you know these are decisions he's made and even if he's not happy with the overall outcome that he shouts at a child like that is uh is quite dramatic yeah no it's 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 a tough um it's a tough scene to read and simultaneously it, it, in, in some ways i suppose it, it this is really the moment where you decide how you feel about little chandler because i suppose for me personally up till this moment i hadn't really liked him i just found it this kind of very frustrating very annoying character but i suppose when you see this home life and you see this arguably unhappy home life you you can develop a bit of sympathy for him equally i know a lot of people when they're reading this will think god like you know if he's shouting at his own child and you know i suppose critically the child's never named it's referred to as it a lot of the times we we, we do know it's a son but um i suppose the absence of a name is, is kind of interesting and that that's an interesting detail that i think ties back into joyce's own personal life so at this stage giorgio joyce would have been born joyce's literally living through this experience living with Nora Barnacle in Trieste I believe at this time or Pula and you know just struggling like these are yeah at this age he would have been what 23 so imagine a 23 year old with a three-month-old baby living in a country he doesn't really speak the language of in a completely different era completely isolated from all his friends and support network you can understand the stress then yeah and also trying to write, trying to make it as a writer while maintaining a job as, a, as an English teacher. Um, the, absolutely. So again, you can see the, the, the parallels with Joyce's own personal life through both the struggles of, I suppose, this, this uh, little Chandler character. Now, obviously, Joyce, even at this stage, was a much more accomplished artist. And there's an argument that this little Chandler is kind of a, a cipher for Joyce in a world where he hadn't, he did not have his own massive intellect or success or or ego choice choice was famously uh, egotistical and very very aware of his own artistic prowess and strength i would say yeah absolutely uh he was and he could be very petty over that as well um yeah so this takes us then to the final scene in the story i think which uh if you've been listening along you'll know that there's often an epiphany at the end of uh, at the end of these stories and this one it's a little bit ambiguous exactly what's going on uh, so, oh yeah, just to, to contextualize a little bit. So his wife comes home, uh, sees that the child is crying and, and eventually is able to placate the child, which, which little Chandler hasn't been able to do. Um, and, uh, and at this moment then, little Chandler felt his cheeks suffused with shame and he stood back out of the lamplight. He listened while the paroxysm of the child's sobbing grew less and less and tears of remorse started to his eyes. It's, uh, it's a powerful moment, right? It's a powerful scene. I suppose a lot of critics and readers and, and, and everyone really in reading this kind of hey, zoom in on that line and kind of say, why is he crying? The tears of remorse are these, you know, as, as, as I very helpfully written in my notes, is he regretting his life or regretting his wife? Um, and it's, you know, essentially what I mean there is, is, is the remorse for 
the thoughts and feelings and opinions that he's had up till now and that's why he's upset with himself and he's kind of angry at internalized anger anger or is it tears of remorse that he realizes he's trapped in this environment and this paralysis and this is what his life is now and the regret is just that he is stuck in this scenario where he's always going to be frustrated by the child he's always going to have unfulfilled desires and dreams and his wife is never going to make him happy ultimately and that he's a he's a very sad character it's it's a difficult one to call yeah i i think so i mean the the title a little cloud maybe suggests that this is just this this passing thing and that he feels this this dark feelings or he feels remorse for this this momentary uh you know the, the way he was brought out of balance or brought into this upset state by gallagher but yeah seeing his life and seeing everything that's come up till now even if his primary regret is how he's acted towards his child and these thoughts he's had regarding his wife uh yeah you still feel that it, there, there's a broader sense of remorse there or a broader regret in terms of how his life has developed absolutely yeah no it's 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 a tough one already. It's, it's, it's one of the more interesting kind of uh, denouement moments. Um, and the, the, I, I don't think there is any kind of consensus or, or interpretive or interpretive reading um, of, of, of that particular story. So I, I, we've reached the end. Do you have any uh, last thoughts on the story, Lachlan? Sure. I mean, I think th- th- this has been a slightly different take. We've probably gone a bit more closer to the text and not given you as much um, narrow interpretive analysis here. So it's just to throw out a couple of ideas that... We maybe didn't get time to, to do a deep dive on but but are interesting to, to consider is one is the religious symbolism in this and i think again we've touched on a few different aspects of this already but uh, there's definitely references throughout to chandler's religiousness and his religious zealotry and there's an argument there's one interpretation or argument that you can see that, that chandler has almost a god complex and that part of the remorse that he experiences at the end is um tied to his realization that he is not god that he is in fact probably a a nothing figure or maybe even a joseph-esque figure in this and i, I suppose i'm hanging a lot of that analysis and interpretation on the uh, after the wife has arrived home seeing the the child crying um, if i just read out the quote here giving no heed to him she began to walk up and down the room clasping the child tightly in her arms and murmuring my little man my little manny was you frightened, love? There now, love. There now. Lama Wan. Mama's little lamb of the world. There now. And it's 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 in response to these these phrases, and particularly the the Lama Wan, lamb of the world, phrase, which is obviously a religious expression used to describe Jesus Christ. And it's it's in response to this then that um, little Chandler starts crying, and there's an argument that says this is his realization that he's not the messiah or the god or jesus and that ultimately it's his son is, is really what represents the future of the world and this kind of mental breakdown is, is is causing the remorse in his life so that's just one probably nothing more to that um another one then is is just the undercurrent of homosexuality so again not something that we've really dived into here but there's a question as to whether chandler is infatuated with ignatius gallagher that there's a kind of uh, an attraction to him there and that the resentment that he has is the result of his wife and um you know he isn't happy with the baby there's even a question as to whether the baby isn't his i don't think that's really explored through this story and it's probably bringing a lot of ancillary ideas and thoughts to here but it's it's um an idea that's out there and an interpretation of the story certainly not mine not one that i would find a lot of strong evidence for but it's, it's an interpretation at least 
Yeah, those are those are some interesting points. I suppose to to talk about the first point as well. There's perhaps some religious imagery uh, in terms of how his wife is dressed. There's this a lot of made of this blue blouse, and she's portrayed in a white white picture frame. So you get again this kind of the colors of Mary that we've seen in in earlier stories. So that in combination with this this lamb, a one lamb of the world, is uh, is perhaps reinforces that idea a little bit. But yeah, I think that's that's about it for me on this story then. I find this one of the hardest stories to read, to be honest. Maybe see too much of uh, too much of Little Chandler, who I, I do not admire as a character, but there's definitely aspects of his life in my own. Yeah, uh, you any uh, any closing thoughts? How do you how do you like this story, Lachlan? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a tough one, all right. Like um, I'm not sure. You know, I I think in some ways like I I position this a little bit like how I position two gallants and um, our next story counterparts as well where these are exceptionally well written exceptionally resonant with myself and with my understanding of you know the world around me but in no way are these actions or these characters people that i would want to replicate or, or, or to bring into the real world you know i think they are incredibly rich well described characters but also repugnant in in and of that or in in at the same time so challenging as you say a challenging story but I, I think in some ways that 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 makes it more enjoyable it, it really reinforces the realist approach or the realistic realistic nature of uh, of the story yeah and i i think you mentioned counterparts there and uh yeah we've talked a lot in this story about how restrained uh, little chandler is and how he's he's almost internalized this paralysis and we'll see in, a, in the next story a kind of a, a similar kind of like a white collarish sort of job that uh that is also restraining one of the characters but he makes a dramatic move in a way in a way that little chandler doesn't and uh yeah we'll also kind of see what what happens as a result so we hope you'll join us for that uh, so yeah so thanks very much been i've been john Cofetter. and i've been Latin we've been dubliners by dubliners thanks very much yeah.